All right, let's get into the word. We're going to be looking at Genesis 12. Genesis 12. Um, so this is my final teaching in these, uh, this is number six. But I really feel, you know, this, this angel, the picture of the angel, what I'm going to teach right now is connected to that. Because I feel there's something uh, really significant about what God is doing here. The very first session, I shared a word about the fact that I feel there's something about this congregation and the stirring of the Spirit here. It feels to me like you're almost sitting on like gold, like it's beneath you. And there's a lot of digging that needs to take place. But there's hidden treasure that's going to... It's like you're on an oil field. You know, when there's so much work to do to kind of dig deep and find the treasure. And then it becomes like just an explosion that brings blessing to multitudes of people. And um, I'm going to be connecting that to that uh, image behind me right there. Uh, But we're going to start from Genesis 12. So this last teaching I'm doing, um, uh, I guess, is more like just declaring something of what I believe this place is called to be. This is about Abraham and God calling him. So at Genesis 12, 1, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I would make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I just want to point your attention to how much of a significant word this is for Abraham to receive. Because God is saying to Abraham, go to your family and say to them, delete me from the history of this family. Go to the home office and tell them to revoke your citizenship and you're no longer part of this country. As in, it's a big deal. It's not just, oh yeah, just kind of move to another location. It's like, disconnect yourself from your history. I want to start something new with you all together. And when you read Acts 7, you get a backstory into this, that the Lord had already said this to Abraham. Um, And so what we're reading in chapter 12 actually happened before Abraham's dad died. And it appears as though Abraham received the word and he was going to journey to this land unknown, but he was taking his dad with him. How many of the word didn't say, take your dad with you? He says, get out of your dad's house. And so his dad eventually died somewhere called Haran. And uh, there's so much in there, but that's not focus. His dad died there. And then after his dad died, Abraham kind of started off back on the journey, the word of the Lord. So you have to get out of what God is calling you to get out of before you can step into what he's calling you into. You have to disconnect from the old systems and old cultures and old way of old ways of living before you can step into something of the newness of life that God is about to release. Sometimes we're trying to step into the new things God has for us while we're, while we're still connected to the old ways of thinking, old ways of living, sometimes even disobedience. Half obedience is not full obedience. It's still disobedience. God is wanting everything. And God said to Abraham, I will show you the land. So Abraham had to have God direct his steps. You know the scripture that says, uh, what's it? Uh, The word of the Lord is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In other words, the word of the Lord can show us the next step to take, but also can give us vision about what's far ahead, the light to my path. The times when God can show you what's ahead 
And at times where you might not see the fullness of what's ahead, but you just see the next step to take. For Abraham to step into God's purpose for him, he had to make some radical decisions. Basically, there had to be a disconnection before there was consecration, which led to elevation into his next dimension. (laughs) There had to be disconnection which led to a consecration, okay? And then that led to elevation into his next dimension. He couldn't step into the next dimension without some sort of pain. Sometimes obedience can be painful. You know, sometimes the things that God calls you to is not just abstract. There are times where God's purpose is for you is connected to geographic locations where you actually physically have to move where you physically have to change location. And when you begin to walk with God, you realize God is not just interested in a part of your life. He's interested in your whole life. He's not just your Savior. He's also your Lord. You see, I question why Jesus was saying this to the church in the book of Revelations. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And I've read that, and we often use that in the context of salvation, calling people to faith. Jesus is standing at the door of your heart, and is knocking, let him in. But that was written to the church. So the question is, why is Jesus knocking at the door? It means he doesn't have the keys. Why does Jesus not have the keys? That means he's not quite the Lord, as we are saying he's the Lord. Because I'm thinking, well, Jesus, I don't just want him to knock. I want him to come in whenever you want. And when he comes in and you truly give him full access, he comes into your temple. And you know what he does? He flips tables. He brings out the whip and he brings order. Because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when you give him lordship and government, you you allow him to become your governor, your leader, truly. Not just in word, but in action. He comes in and he starts to move things around. Then he tells you, you can't date that person. He tells you, you can't watch that. He tells you, you can't spend your time that way. He tells you, you can't spend your money that way because now he is your governor. He's governing your whole life. Are you you tracking with me? We all like to use the name of Jesus. Oh, we pray in the name of Jesus. But that name is not powerful in your lips if you're not under his government. The name of Jesus is not just like a magic word you use. To come in his name, it means to come under his authority, meaning before you even say the name, you have to be under his government. So you represent him where you go, and you speak his name, and things shift. You can say the name of Jesus and not be under his government. And the fact that you say his name does not mean there's going to be power released, because The demons fear you to the degree to which you fear him. So if you're not under his authority, you cannot exercise authority over darkness. Do you know the scripture in um, Philippians that says about Jesus being highly exalted, that at the name of Jesus, every name must bow and every tongue must confess that Jesus is Lord. Read it again in Philippians. It doesn't say at the mention of the name of Jesus. You know what it says? It says, at the name of Jesus. I've read all the other translations. It never says, at the mention. And I've often quoted it that way even when I've prayed. At the mention of the name of Jesus, every name is spelled. No, no, no. It says, at the name. And there's a difference. Because the name of Jesus is a location. The name of Jesus is a location in the spirit. Okay, so let's imagine this is the name of Jesus right here. 
It is at the name of Jesus. So you may be over here mentioning the name, but you're not at the name. Because the scriptures also tell us the name of the Lord is a what? Is a strong tower. The righteous run in <laughs> and are safe. So you run into the name. Now, when you're in the name, it means you're under the government of the name. You cannot be under the government of the name and have unforgiveness in your heart. You cannot be under the government of the name and live in sin unchallenged. You cannot be under the government of the name and entertain pornography. You cannot be under the government of the name and walk in backbiting and jealousies and envy. It's impossible because that government affects how you behave. So when you're under the government of the name and you mention the name, demons recognize you're under his government, so they have to bow. But when you're not under his government and you're over here, you're mentioning the name of Jesus, but you're not under his government, demons do you're not under his government. And in the book of Acts, you read about some guys who said, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, they're trying to cast out demons. In the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, come out. You know what the Bible says? The demons, there were seven guys. The demon in one guy stripped the seven guys naked. That gives you an idea of how radical and powerful demonic spirits can work through an individual. One guy strips seven guys. I'm thinking, even how did that guy manage this? Because if you strip one guy naked, the other six should have beat him up or something. Well, I don't know. Super strength. He was able to overpower seven guys, strip them naked, and they ran out of the house embarrassed because they were using the name but not under the government of them. And even note this, the demon in the guy said this, Jesus, I know. <laughs> the demon said the name. The demon mentioned the name Jesus. And the demon did not shrivel up and kind of like just disintegrate on the floor. The demon could mention the name and nothing happened. So the fact that people say Jesus doesn't mean anything's going to happen. Where are you saying the name of Jesus from is the question. Are you saying it from compromise or are you saying it from government, under his government? And by the way, this is important for parents here. The compromise of one generation leads to the captivity of the next. So if as a parent you think, you know what, I can just be okay with this lifestyle of sin and addiction and, you know, it's okay, no one knows about it. You see, oftentimes the power of sin is in its secrecy. And this is what I was saying in the morning session when it says in James 5, confess your sins one to another. Exposing it in community actually causes you to step into a place of the light. You're, you step into the light, exposing, confessing it to someone. See, it's easy to confess to the Lord. That's the easy part. Confessing to somebody else can be a challenge. But that actually is part of the constitution of our community where we confess our sins one to another. Now, I'm not saying confess your sins to every single person because, you know, you know, that's not a healthy thing. It's the right people to confess to. And so there's something about healing that that brings. And where I'm going with this is Abraham was coming under the government of heaven. And as he came under the government of heaven, that government became his sat-nav. So that government was directing him to the promised land. And the only way he could get to the promised land was if he remained under the government of God. So we read on. Abraham is being directed by God. We get to verse 7. Actually, let's back up. We get to verse um, 6. Abraham passed through the land. 
Sorry, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the Terebith tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there Abraham built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Let's just pause there. We're going to read on in a few moments. So Abraham is being directed by the Lord to this promised land. He gets to a location. And the Bible makes it very clear that when he gets to that location, that location he gets to, God appears to him in that location. Boy, the Bible also states in that location there were Canaanites in the land. These were people that were occupying the territory that God had that God was going to give to Abraham. And the moment he stepped into that territory, God appeared to him and said, Now, this is the land I've been speaking to you about, and this is the land I'm going to give to you. Now, when Abraham received that prophetic word from the Lord, the first thing he did was he built an altar. As you look through Abraham's life, you find that he built four altars, and this was altar number one that he built. But let's just go back a bit and examine the nature of this altar he built, because I think there's something very interesting about this. In verse 6, it says, Abraham passed through the land to the place. So if you've got a New King James or King James Bible, you probably see those words, the place of Shechem. And when you look up what that word, the place, is in Hebrew, it is a word, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, it's, it's, it's makom. It's spelled M-A-Q-O-M, okay? And do you know what makom means? A sacred place. So... Abraham passed through the land to the sacred place of Shechem. And one of the ways I understand that is, Abraham stepped into a highly spiritual place, but on the negative. Are you tracking with me? Because you can be spiritual in terms of you are aligned with the Holy Spirit, but you can also be very spiritual, aligned with demonic spirits. And the people that don't know Jesus that are often even more spiritual than believers because they're very, they've traveled in depth into all kinds of diabolical, demonic activities. And many of them understands, understand things about spiritual realities more than believers. They believe in what they do more than we believe in the scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I said this yesterday, I think. How do you expect to exercise authority, God's authority over a region in prayer when the witch in that region is more submitted to Satan than you are to God? When the witch is ready to do whatever Satan asks them to do and you're debating what God's asking you to do and yet you want to pray for his kingdom to come. See, when you pray that prayer, your kingdom come and you say, Lord, let your will be done. You don't have the authority to pray that prayer if his will is not being done in you first. You come say, Lord, let your will come, let your kingdom come in the West Sussex. To, to release those words out of your mouth, first, his will needs to be done in you. His kingdom needs to be done in you. So when you pray it, Lord, let your will be done and let your kingdom come in West Sussex, there is authenticity backed up with authority because you are living what you're praying. But when there's disobedience and you're not under his, the government of his name, you can't speak it out to be done out there if it's not being done in here. Do you want the will of God to be done or do you want your will to be done? Because I can guarantee you, as you journey with God, you realize there's going to be several points where your will is going to clash with his will. 
Even Jesus had moments when what he desired clashed with the Father's will. And then he said, you know the prayer, Lord, not my will, but yours be done in the garden. So if Jesus had to go through that, who are you to think you're not going to go through that multiple times? And oftentimes when our will clashes with his will, some people look for a theology to excuse their compromise, and then they call it grace. The grace of God is not God winking at sin and just saying, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. The grace of God is God empowering you to overcome sin. Can I go further? Any teaching on the grace of God that gives you liberty for carnality is heresy. The grace of God does not make you free to sin. It makes you free from sin. The cross of Jesus is not a sin management program. It's a sin eradication program. He came to set us free from it. And I am a living testimony because I've met people who are evangelists and they become evangelists for a gospel that they're not living. They become spokesmen and salesmen for a gospel that they are not experiencing its power in their own life. I can't convince you about something I don't really believe or I'm not saying I work in my own life. I want to see this reality in me first. So I want the will of God to be done in me. And then his will can be done through me. So here is Abraham. He's journeying with God. He gets to this territory that's highly spiritual, but on the negative, because he gets to a sacred place. And what I believe is happening here is Abraham gets to a place that has a demonic altar, that has a kind of spiritual headquarters, so to speak, that caused the people, the Canaanites, that we read about in that same verse, because it says the Canaanites were in the land, but before we're told the Canaanites are in the land, we're told Abraham gets to this sacred place. I am convinced what caused the Canaanites to have physical possession of the territory was because they had first had spiritual possession of the territory by raising of this sacred place. So when God led Abraham there, the first thing he did was to raise up another altar, God's own altar, to displace the demonic altar that was there because that territory, God was going to give it to Abraham and his descendants. And when you raise up an altar, you're making a statement in the spirit. Altars are spiritual places. Altars are places where the spirit realm is able to have influence in the natural realm. In this case, the altar was a physical Thing that was built, altars are places of sacrifice. Altars, the altars are places of worship. They're places of prayer. They're places where humanity meets divinity. It's like a realm, it's like a thin place that both the demonic and the angelic can have access to the physical realm so easily because of a human agent that, we call it like that, that functions in priesthood to create a space for the spirit realm to influence the natural realm. And can I announce to you right here in West Sussex, there are altars all around this land. They may not be physical like we see in this, you know, in this context, but there are altars built. And in a moment, I'll come to explain how that affects this building and how that affects this congregation. Altars are absolutely significant for the people of God. So this is the first altar Abraham built. Then we read on, and we find that he moves in verse, where am I now? I am in verse, so that's 7, 
Um, let's go to verse 8. Abraham moved from there, so this is the first altar. He moved to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord God. So this is altar number two that Abraham built. Altar number one, he built that because the Lord appeared to him and said, I'm going to give you this land. Altar number two, he built. We don't read about the Lord appearing to him. We read about him getting to a certain location, and then he called on the name of the Lord his God. What, what does that mean, to call on the name of the Lord his God? That's prayer. He, something about him. Yesterday, we spoke about contending prayer and travail to a certain degree, and I was saying it's a different type of prayer to soaking. In soaking, like, oh, Lord, I thank you. Lord, I receive your grace. Oh, Lord, thank you for your presence. Now, that has its place. In contending prayer, you are releasing Christ to heaven. You are re- you're pouring yourself out. When, uh, what's his name, uh, Elijah was praying on the mountaintop for the rain to come, he was pouring himself out. When Jesus was praying in the garden, he was pouring himself out. He wasn't there just waiting for the Lord to come. He was releasing his groans to heaven. So there's a, that type of prayer captures something here. When Abraham called on the name of the Lord his God. Now, we're not going to go into the two other altars that Abraham built, but we're going to focus on this particular one. Because this one is connected to this place we're here right now in. So turn your Bibles to Genesis 28. Um, Genesis 28. Now remember what I just said. Abraham built altar number two. And the, the DNA of this altar was his calling on the name of the Lord his God. It's like there was a travail. There was a stirring up of his heart. The first altar he received from heaven. God appeared to him and then he built it. The second altar, he was being stirred in himself to call on God. Now, many years later, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is Jacob. Many years later, Genesis 28, verse 10. Now, Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. And so he came to a certain place. Now, look at this. That word... Where he says, verse 11, so Jacob came to a certain place. That word, certain place in Hebrew, is the same word I told you earlier. It's makom, M-A-Q-O-M. You know what that word means? He came to a sacred place. Now, we'll find out later that this place he stumbled upon was the very place that I've just told you about, that Abraham, his grandfather, built altar number two, and called on the name of his Lord is God. Now, it might not be as clear as you read the passage, but when you do some further study, you can see that this place was actually the territory in which his grandfather built an altar to the Lord. Now, he had no idea about this. So what actually happened was Jacob was running away from Esau because he had stolen the birth. You know the story, stolen the birthright, and Esau was going to kill him. So he's running for his life. Now, the way spiritual things work is when he, when he took that blessing, he was implicated by what he took upon himself because that blessing was the blessing of Abraham, was the promises of God to that whole generation. He took that upon himself. He had no idea. He thought he was running away from his brother, but what was actually happening was his father's altar was summoning him. Are you tracking? <laughs> he thought he was running away. 
But something else was drawing him to a location. Some of you have no idea that some of your actions are regulated by things that you're implicated by in your bloodline. Okay, you're all white people here, so this might not make sense. Some of us that have African backgrounds, who have grand-grand-grandparents, great-great-grandparents that were involved in idol worship, it doesn't matter where you travel to. It doesn't matter what country on the planet you go to. If there are altars erected in your bloodline to demonic idols, regardless of where you go, you are implicated by being connected to that family. So no matter where you go or no matter how far you travel, you become a victim of that altar unless you break the covenant by the name of Jesus. And there are many people from those backgrounds who right now are dealing with all sorts of weird activities in their life because of altars that were, demonic altars that were raised in their bloodline that they never dealt with. Now, I don't know if this might make a lot of sense to you. I don't mean to be horrible when I say you're all white people. But, but some of us that have African backgrounds and understand idol worship and all the demonic witchcraft stuff, we know that altars are really powerful on the negative side. And because we understand how they work to a certain degree from experience on that side, we know in the kingdom it's even much more powerful and potent. So when Abraham erected an altar and received the blessing and his grandson stole the blessing... The altars that the grandfather erected was still able to regulate things in the life of the grandson, even though he had no idea about it. Are you hearing me today? He's running away from Esau, but the altar of his grandfather is drawing him. So he says he gets to a certain place and he stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. Okay, verse 12, then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on earth, and its top reached to heaven. And, and there the angels of the Lord were ascending and descending on it. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it. Note, there are not many times in Scripture you see the Lord standing. This is one of those times the Lord is standing. The Lord stood above it and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Yeah, I'm the God of I'm I'm the Lord God of Abraham your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Now, so Jacob is having this experience. You might call it a dream, and yes, it is a dream, but it's not just an ordinary dream. Because in the dream, God is speaking to him about where he's placing his head. So, you know, some dreams can be kind of uh, figurative, like, you know, J Joseph's dream of, you know, the, the five fat cows and the five, uh, five seven five, uh, you know, cows and seven thin cows. And, you know, th there's all kind of language to it. And I know dr the dream world has lots of language. This one was literal. Because the Lord said to him in the dream, you read it there yourself. He says, the land on which you lie, I will give to you. So the Lord was speaking to him plainly about where he was lying. Now, if the Lord was speaking to him plainly, if we take steps back, then we need to examine the experience that he had. Because the experience Jacob had in that place was actually the reality of what was truly going on in that place, but from the spirit realm perspective. When Jacob got to that place in the natural, before he slept there, he had no idea that that place was a thin place in the spirit. He had no idea that that was the place his grandfather erected an altar. 
But when he slept and he had this experience, he could see the same place, but from the spirit realm perspective. Do you know that this church looks different if you look at it from the spirit realm? Do you know that your family looks different if you look at it from the spirit realm? Because when you look at it from the spirit realm, you, you see truly what's going on. The things that the natural eyes cannot see. Jacob could not see the angels going up and down until his eyes were opened. So let's back up. Let's read verse 12. He dreamed and behold, listen to this. Listen to the language here. A ladder was set up on earth. Everyone say set up on earth. A ladder was set up where? Set up where? The ladder was not set up in heaven. The ladder was set up where? So question, who set up the ladder on earth? His grandfather must have set up the ladder. So the question is, how did his grandfather set up the ladder? By raising up an altar where he called on the name of the Lord his God. Now, this is many, many years later. So you know what that tells us? Altars never die. Prayers never die. They just accumulate. So here you have uh, the, the spiritual activity of Jacob's grandfather impacting on him many years later. And it tells us the ladder was set on earth, giving us an insight into the fact that another human, someone, somewhere, set up that ladder. It wasn't God that set up this ladder because the ladder was not set up in heaven. It was on earth. Now, you read further. It says, and, the, and behold, the ladder was set up on earth and its top reached to heaven. And there, the angels of God were, listen to this, the angels of the Lord were ascending and descending. He didn't say the angels of the Lord were descending and ascending. Are you, are you following me? What was responsible for their oscillatory motion was on earth. They were first ascending from earth to heaven, and then they were then descending. So here you have angelic traffic. But how is it that this has been going on for many years? What are these angels doing? Well, I, I mean, we don't have a lot of insight into what they're doing, but I know this, that angels are messengers from heaven carrying out God's purposes. So maybe, this is my kind of speculation here, maybe when Abraham set up that ladder, angels started to ascend and descend, preparing the way for the generations to come that would walk through that territory, Abraham's descendants. Maybe the angels started to arrange relationships such that this person marries this person and these things started to come alive in, a, in alignment with God's purpose. Maybe the angels had insight into what God wanted to do in that territory based Based on his promise to Abraham, and so they started to orchestrate things in the spiritual realm to make way for the plans of God to be manifested. Because I cannot think of what angels are doing in such numbers, ascending or descending. They're busy. They have something. They're, they're not just coming to look on the earth and go, oh, look, it looks nice, and go back up. They have something they're doing. And when I think about this, how does that connect to this church? Well, there's a guy on there that looks like an angel. And I believe the angels ascending and descending is like they were coming to the earth realm with assignment, but they had to touch base first at Abraham's altar. Because that altar, the DNA of it was prayer. Yeah. 
And so the angels had to touch base in that place before they could go anywhere else. And even as I spoke to James, and he, I, I heard him, he made a reference to, you know, this whole scripture being significant for him. And when I, was, when I was praying about what to share this last session, I had to, I just felt drawn to share this passage again. Because I believe as this church begins to arise in prayer, in the culture of prayer, not just the prayer meeting, but the prayer culture, that there would be an increase of angelic activities connected to this location that will have an impact on this territory. But the key is the altar needs to be raised up here, the altar of prayer. Now, we, we journey in Scripture later on. We see, uh, 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 what's it called? Um, actually, before we journey to Isaiah 56, 7, where it says that my house will be called a house of prayer. When Jacob wakes up from this dream, look at what he says in verse 16. It says, then Jacob awoke from, the, from his sleep, and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. As far as I'm aware, this is the first use of that phrase in Scripture, the house of God. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So these you know, this kind of wording is quite peculiar. Jacob wakes up and he says, wow, God is in this place. I had no idea about it. This place I'm in right now, even though I didn't know it, this is the house of God. And the reason why it's a house of God is there is a gate there to heaven. So, you know, in the New Testament, we're called the church, the ecclesia, and we often use that word interchangeably when we sometimes we call ourselves, you know, this is the house of God. From this revelation of Jacob, a place cannot be called the house of God unless there is a gate there to heaven. This place he was in had a gate to heaven. What was responsible for that gate? The gate there to heaven was there because there was an altar that was raised up in that place. And what type of altar was raised up? It was an altar of prayer. Now, let's fast forward to the New Testament. I believe it's Matthew 16. I touched on this yesterday. Jesus said, I will build my church. And you know what he says? The gates, the what? The gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not prevail. So in Jacob's revelation, we have insight into a gate that's connected to heaven. And in that gateway, angels are ascending and descending. But then Jesus comes and says, I will build my church, which is also can be referenced as the house of God, right? That has another gate in it to heaven. Are you tracking with me? But Jesus then says, the gates of hell will not prevail. So heaven has gates and hell has gates. Because of heaven's gates, which were opened up by an altar that Abraham built, because of that, angels are ascending and descending. Well, if that's the case with heaven's gates, let's, let's look at hell's gates. If hell has gates, hell has altars. Because altars open up gateways. And if with heaven's gates, angels are ascending and descending, with hell's gates and hell's altars, guess what? <laughs> Demons are <laughs> descending and what? 
So I want to say to you, right here in West, West Sussex, there is a battle of altars going on. There are altars that will open up gateways for demonic influence on the territory. But God is wanting you as a church to open up gateways that are being opened up, but sustain the sacrifice in prayer and worship to cause angelic activities to flood this territory so that we claim it for God like never before. And I know there's been a lot of headway in that line, but I feel like this message is just to reestablish what God is wanting to do in this place more than ever. That the gates of hell will not prevail. The altars of wickedness will not prevail because the church is arising to become a true house of prayer for all nations. You know, I said in the leader's session last night, and I wrap up now, because I want to pray over you as a church that this becomes like a core part of how you function and how you see this place, that God is wanting to increase angelic activity. And by the way, when you begin to pray more, when you begin to engage in worship and regular spiritual activities, the secondary consequence of that is there is always an increase in angelic activities. It's not weird. It's not, I mean, it's weird to the physical, natural mind, but it is, it is a normal kingdom activity. I mean, think about Acts 12. It says the church prayed constantly for Peter. And because they prayed, an angel was sent to set Peter free. The angel set Peter free. Peter goes to the house where they're praying, knocks on the door. The lady looks at the fact that it's Peter, tries to get their attention and say, oh, yeah, it's Peter. You know what they said? They said, oh, you know, you're beside yourself. It's Peter's angel. So my question is, how is it that they said it's Peter's angel and no one bothered to actually just go out and look at what an angel looks like? No one, no one was intrigued that an angel was knocking at the door. The person said, oh, it's Peter's angel. Forget about it. Let's carry on praying. If I said to you, an angel is there, you'll be like, oh, is it? You want to look and see the angel. The point I'm trying to make is the early church was so used to an angelic activity, they weren't shocked that an angel was at the door. Because the church was a praying church. As you engage in prayer, things begin to stir. Daniel 9.21, I believe it says, As Daniel was praying, an angel was caused to fly swiftly and reached him about the time of the evening sacrifice. So my question to you, church, is what is normal angel speed? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. However... Whatever normal angel speed is, the angel that was caused to reach Daniel, the angel that was coming to Daniel was caused to, sw to fly swiftly while Daniel was praying. Do you know what that tells me? Prayer causes acceleration in angelic activities. And you see this pattern all through Scripture. So, what I really feel the Lord wants to release over you as a church is that clarity of identity and assignment that this place is called to be like a Bethel. Are you with me? Where you're stewarding the spiritual atmosphere over the region. 
Because of your understanding of altars being raised up in your prayer culture, in your worship culture, in your honoring one another and living, you know, why I told them this morning, living in a place of mutual honor where there is a, a sense of real peace among you and, and, and love and the enemy has no foothold. In the midst of all that, you're stilling an atmosphere for heaven to be able to invade this territory more than ever. Because I believe God has put something over this congregation that's definitely connected to revival and awakening. And there is no shortcut to it unless you raise up the altar, unless you service that altar. So when you gather to pray corporately, think like this. You are sustaining the heavenly pathways. It's like you're opening up the prayer shaft. You're forging a highway through prayer for the move of God to have a place to land and find expression. And you're saying, Lord, if you're looking throughout England and looking throughout the south of England, let this be a place that you find so easy to come and move. In fact, Father, let our prayers and our worship, our fastings, our sacrifice so attract your presence that you cannot help but come and manifest yourself here. Because listen, I know, in fact, the other day, the first session I preached, and I was saying there's something on this land. As I was saying that, it just dawned on me that this is where all the big festivals happen. And I am also want to say to you that what God wants to do is more than those big festivals. Festivals come and they go, and praise God for that. I believe what God wants to do here is going to be like a place, like an oasis where people are coming um, to encounter a move of God because God has found a people that He can rest on, not just a visitation, but a habitation. Those sort of things don't come cheap, and those sort of things don't happen just because we said, yes, Lord, we want it. Actually, there is a cost to it. There is a level of understanding, spiritual understanding. He's wanting you as a church to enter into. So when James and other leaders started putting on prayer meetings and started to call the church to spiritual activities, you understand what you're doing. You're preparing the way in the Spirit. You're forging the highway through prayers and intercessions for the move of God to land. Now listen, this will take some time. This will take some effort. And I said this in one of my sessions. I don't know why, but Christians, every time they see something that requires effort, they call it legalism. <laughs> this is not one of those. Because if you look at the life of Jesus, waking up early, staying up all night requires quite a lot of effort to pray. You, you can't say Jesus was being legalistic. Why didn't you say that to the apostles? Choosing to give themselves to prayer, praying through the night. So there is an element of effort that's required in aligning ourselves with what God wants to do. We're not trying to earn it. We're just preparing ourselves for the very thing that He's already made available. Because if we don't prepare ourselves, the very thing we're crying out for will become a destruction to us. I'll say that again. If we are not prepared, the very things we're crying out for will destroy us. You know, in the book of Acts, in Acts 5, people lied and died for lying. Why is it that people are lying today in churches and not dying? Because we're not in the same kind of glory they were in. In that glory, you lie and you die. Do you want that glory? <laughs> if you want that glory, you realize you need to examine yourself and go, Lord, am I ready? Because with an increased measure of His presence and glory comes increased responsibility and increased judgment. 
So sometimes when we're crying out for a move of God, it's not like he doesn't want to release it. He's just saying to us, you're not ready for what you're praying for. And so I'm going to prolong the process to still deal with ambitions and deal with all these things that you don't even know are there. And as we begin to die to self, and as he begins to gain more of us, he can entrust us with more dimensions of his glory. I believe this congregation and the other two congregations connected with this ministry right here, there's a calling on you. I'm going to repeat it for revival. But are you going to journey with your leaders? Or are you just going to sit back and let other people do the prayer? And I feel a real hunger in this place for more of God. I feel a real hunger in this place for an authentic move of God. I feel lots of people here are not satisfied where you've been. And that's a, that's a good thing. It's a holy hunger. In fact, it's a gift from God. That frustration that you feel in your prayer life is a gift from God to get you out of the rot of prayerlessness. That's why there's an unrest, because he wants to pull you out of it. So you feel the frustration, and that frustration is meant to be like energy to push you out of the complacency, the cycle of compromise that you've been in. Because in this season, God is wanting us to give everything, to forge a highway in the Spirit, to prepare the way for what he wants to do. Now, do you want to stand with me, please? I want to get maybe the band up. And I'd like us.